Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley, who I just found out off air has never had a shower beer. Never had one. So do you know what a shower beer is? Tell us. So it's a beer that you have in the shower. So it's like maybe you're getting ready for the night and you want to pregame, but you don't have time to have beer and shower, so you combine them both. My question to you is... Bring it on. How long do you spend in the shower? Well... I, mean, I guess you, the, you're a clean guy, but I mean, I'm a recovering alcoholic, so I guess the question back to you would be: Is uh, how long did you think I was away from a beer? <laughs> there you go. You know, you Fair know, enough. you know uh, what I mean. Yeah, I was yeah. like, it was one of those things. But you know, like I say, shower beer, and my guest here is Seneca, and you can jump in here real quick because uh, you've had a shower beer. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I bet you most addicts know what a shower beer is because as an addict, most people find a way to do both of them at the same time, and Maybe they figure out they can do that so they can do the other. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, the addict brain, you're always you're always finding workarounds so that you can drink or use or whatever, right? Well, we're going to talk yeah. to our guest, Seneca, in just a bit. But before that, we'd like to talk and yeah. kind of catch up and uh, do that mental minute. But uh, last night, I was thinking of something. So I was in the shower. No beer. No beer. I was singing. And uh, that's where I'd like to do some thinking. Sure. And I was singing... Uh, <laughs> Kiss the girl by the Little Mermaid because oh. I just put my I just put my phone in there and I hit shuffle. So so I would have to say that yeah the the Disney tunes I'm pretty guilty of singing those too because right? they sound good in the shower. She don't got a lot to say, but there's something about. There you go. Yeah, like my acoustics in the shower they're amazing. Sound amazing, right? You know, and you're so Beyonce every time. I was thinking of something and. Um, and it was kind of my motivating factor to get sober. It was kind of my motivating factor to get on TV, kind of my motivating factor to get into my career. And I've said it to you before, and I relish, I cherish when people bet against me. For some reason, do. it gives me motivation. Yeah. It's your oppositional side. But I'm now at a point in my life where I want you to bet on me. Fair. Because... I, Truth be told, it's easier doing the right thing. <laughs> it really is. Very true. Yeah. It's easier doing the right thing. And I mean, I'm a little late to the game on that. You know what yeah. I mean? And, and Hey, never too late. And, and trying to figure things out. But I want to be a person now to my kids, to my girlfriend, to my family, to all that depend on me, that where you can bet on me. I don't want to be a surprise anymore. There's like somehow he seems to pull oh, it yeah. off. 
Yeah. And I'm moving that way into my life and into headspace where, you know what? Bet on Casey because he's going to do it. If he said he's going to do it, he's going to do it. So what does it take to get people to shift their attitude about you? Well, I mean, once again, it's the same thing that's gotten me sober. It's I have to do the work. And it's not something that's going to happen overnight. It's like and, building trust, right? It's yeah. Consistency over time. And, and, and don't get me wrong. Like, I just talked to my producer this morning, and she says, do you have next week booked? And surprisingly, I do. And she goes, well, what about the week after that? And I was like, I didn't know that was a thing. And she's <laughs> like, she goes, yeah. Two weeks in a row. <laughs> she goes, yeah, calendars. <laughs> you can do it, whatever you want, you know? Yeah. And so, but for my whole life... Um, it's kind of like that Seinfeld where he throws $20 out the window. Yeah. And reaches Even Steven? Yeah. My life has been somewhat that. Yeah. And, and, it, and it worked until it didn't work, and then that's what brought me to my rock bottom. But I now I'm trying to transition to a point in my life where you can bet on me. I want you to bet on me. Oh, I, I believe that 100%. And, and and I know that it's going to take work, and it's not me just you know proclaiming it on a podcast where people are like, oh, he said it, so we're going to bet on him. Right. Uh, but I want my track record from here forth to prove that – I'm a, I'm, I'm a good bet. Yeah. Well, you you do do what you say you're going to do. In fact, you announced before we went on the air that you finally went to the doctor like you said you were going to do. I did. I went to the doctor. Yeah. How'd and that work out? It, so they did a – is it a lipid panel? Yeah. For uh, your cholesterol and all that. Yeah. I signed up for colonoscopy. You signed up? Yeah. Yep. yep. And uh, so <laughs> – Did you do the warm-up check in the office? No, 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 okay. no, no, no. That's good. <laughs> I don't, I don't That's go, an uncomfortable one. Yeah, I don't go that far on the first date. Yeah. yeah you know what I mean? Yeah. I was like, maybe we'll have to come back. <laughs> I had I had a colonoscopy last year. Yeah? And when I turned 50. And, and now they're saying you're supposed to do it when you're 45. Yeah, so I'm four, four years late. Yeah, you're a little bit late on that. So I, I'll tell you, that's a really good time. Yeah, no, yeah. I think you're lying to me. <laughs> but I went and got all my stuff checked because recently, like I told you, we found a, a family family friend who at the age of 44 had a stroke and a healthy guy a good looking dude and and just you know i mean he's he's my brother um and my daughter came to me and she's like hey dad and this is what got me she goes i want you to be able to walk me down the aisle i was like are are you getting married she goes no because i I need not till this summer you know (laughs) i go i need you to to go check on your health she really said that yeah she did wow and so i was like oh you know what because i hadn't been to a doctor in four years yeah. Since I went to rehab, and and I, the, the, now everything's on an app. And so I looked, and and he was like, "You took this and this," and I was like, "I don't remember taking that." And then yeah. he goes, "Well, it says here rehab." And I was like, "Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. I must have taken it in rehab." That's why I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. I'm not taking that stuff anymore. Yeah, my brain was a little foggy. But my cholesterol, my triglycerides, uh, my testosterone, everything's in normal levels, and Good so for you. I'm doing okay. That's awesome. Uh, I could I could shed a few pounds. Yeah. Uh, and uh, now I'm currently trying to get off soda pop because um, that's terrible for you man dude i gave it a hard run yeah when leslie moved in uh the lovely leslie my girlfriend yeah is she a soda drinker oh well she's not a soda drinker she's a nurturer so if you say you want something uh, you write it down on a list surprisingly it shows up in the house the next day wow and so we had a freezer full of soda pop and cheese and trail mix and my family's not favorites the, my my family's not like me where they can uh ration yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. if it's there, let's go. Yeah, we're going 100% <laughs> you know? all in. Yeah. yeah. And so we were burning through a lot of soda pop. I mean, it yeah. was a lot of, and I was like, hey, we can't do this anymore. Yeah. Because yeah. if it's there, I'll drink it. <laughs> well, you know, it's a, it, it's totally addicting, and it's it's also kind of emotionally and behaviorally addicting. Like, think about the sound. Oh, yeah. No. You know, and the fizz. Oh, yeah. And, you know, little little dances on your tongue as you drink it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm gonna... I mean, you know, it's nice and cold. Oh, yeah. 
I'll be right back. Yeah. But you know, but, but, <laughs> but you I were, told you I got off it. Yeah. Yeah. And I rarely ever have one anymore and I feel so much better. So I'm not completely off of it. I have a soda pop in the morning. Okay. Uh, in and the I, morning? Well, yeah, I get up at four o'clock in the morning, bro. <sighs> I need a little caffeine. I don't drink coffee. I'm probably the only guy that ever went to rehab who doesn't drink coffee. Have some iced tea. <sighs> yeah. I don't know. Right from, from the south? No. Yeah. No. Come on. No, I don't want tea. Okay, what soda do you drink in the morning? Diet Mountain Dew. Diet Mountain Dew. That's my jam. <laughs> All right. You know, All so right. I get a Diet Mountain Fair Dew, enough. and then I've been trying to shift to water, and I feel a little more energy. And so, I mean, I, I think that's kind of apropos of life. I mean, we're always evolving. And yeah. when you think you, you're you doing good, you're like, well, wait a minute. I could probably reexamine this, and I'm probably doing a little too much of this. and. So as Carl Rogers talked about becoming, I don't even know him. he's a famous psychologist, okay. talked about becoming. And the healthiest people uh, throughout their entire life, they maintain this idea of I'm always becoming who I want to be. They're not trying to find an end point, that they're in the process. And so that's kind of what you're saying is that we're, if we're always in the process of improving without this like need to be at some artificial end, like, you know, I'm fit enough or I'm, you know, whatever, then you're just always in this process of becoming a better person. That's where happiness is. I think complacency is the death of life. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, just just keep moving. It's Life's a journey. It's not a destination. And yeah. just keep it going. It sounds like we're kind of moving and segueing into uh, – Matt's Mental Minute. We could do that right now. I have a couple things to talk about I think are pretty interesting. So first of all, I'm going to toot the horn of psychology. Okay. Okay, because we talk a lot about medicine on this show. Which what is does fine. that horn look like? It, it, it's, you know, big enough. <laughs> okay, <good. laughs> um, But uh, behavioral treatments, so, so therapies. Yeah. Co- cognitive and behavioral therapies. Uh, there's a new study out in JAMA, Journal of America. American Medicine. Yeah. American Medical Association. There you go. Yeah, it's JAMA. Just, it's JAMA. Sounds cool. But what they're talking about here is they found that actually uh, you save a lot of money and time if you include uh, behavioral treatments, not just medical treatments, for uh, substance abuse and alcohol abuse treatment. So they found that in this study, 400 U.S. people, 11% of the the study uh, had substance or alcohol use uh, and they decreased their pharmacy costs uh, over time by 15 to 27 months, lower pharmacy costs, and increase in uh, graduating from their programs versus those that just did medical treatments. Okay. Is that interesting to you at all? You no, don't look I, interested. I, I, no, I think it's interesting. I, I mean, but I think for most people in substance abuse, behavioral therapy is a key component to their recovery. Well, I was going to ask you what you thought about that because, you know, a lot of times people feel like medicine – Taking a medication—that's the—that's the real deal. I think that's counterproductive. I think you're just replacing something with another. And I'm not saying that, that there's not a valid use for that in recovery. Right. Uh, and and well, I think there is. And, and for detoxing, and whether it's uh, uh, mood enhancements or depression or whatever it is, underlying facts. I think there's there's definitely a part of that. But I think so much for addicts out there is is the behavioral component to it. Yeah. You know, um, like there's but. The key, 15 to 27 months, they still had progress. So the key is you can't just do it for the 30 days you're in rehab. No, that's – but so the 30 days or 45 days like I did in rehab, basically those are to break old habits and create new ones. And and most people who succeed in recovery continue those habits. It's not like – most people think, well, I'm going to go to rehab for 30 days and I'm going to be fixed. 
Right. No, that no. That's the old way of thinking. Is that thirty days is going to cure? Well, I think all. that thinking on our show, at least, seems to be associated with people's relapses. They kind of say that as then they preface telling us a story about a relapse. Yeah, but but that's but but that's the way people used to think about it. Yeah. I mean, even uh, in my addiction, my ex-wife. Like, I was okay, just, you're good. You're good. Yeah. You, well, you went to rehab, so you're done. Well, no. Basically, that thirty days was to stop old habits, start beginning new ones, and then the real work begins. Right. The rehab is a safe space to detox, to take yourself out of a situation and learn new coping mechanisms and skills to help you on your road to recovery. Right. It's the beginning of that journey, right? It really is. But most people thought it was the beginning and the end to your journey of recovery. Yeah. And that's just not the the, the facts. Well, I always, you know me, I like, I like numbers. I like, I like to see that things really work. People's opinions are fine. But when we're talking about trying to recommend things to large groups of people, we want to know what really works. And so it's nice to come across these articles. That's certainly not the only one. But research shows time and time again that if you do the behavioral health treatments, you're going to have long-term positive outcomes, especially if you're trying to be in recovery from drugs and alcohol. I love but it. here's the fun one. Okay. I want, uh, you, I'm going to have you weigh in on this. Um, we're going to have our guest weigh in on this. All right. If Josh has anything to say, he can weigh in on this. Sure. But the the, the question, this is, this is a little review about, the question is, should we let people take illegal drugs under medical supervision? And currently in the in the world, there are about 100 centers in countries like Canada and Switzerland and other places where that is allowed. You can come in and take illegal drugs under the in a safe space under the supervision like a shaman or a, like Amsterdam. Uh, well, Amsterdam, I think you can just do whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> but there are actual centers that are medical centers where mm-hmm. anybody who's using can come in and use in that space and any drug, any illegal drug is fine. And in the United States, there have been some trial studies. In New York, both in Manhattan and Harlem, uh, this doctor, uh, author Arthur Kaplan, has, is, is the one who wrote this uh, article, and he's reviewed that, those processes there, and he has some interesting takes on it. He feels like that it saves money because a lot of the people that overdose in the community, then the community is responsible for taking care of them. I'm not sure that's a great reason to save money, but it, it saves money. But there's also a decreased risk to the first responders who who uh, don't have to go into these dangerous places maybe and try to help people that are overdosing. Fewer syringes are littering parks and public places in these 100 cities around the world where this is happening. Um, and uh, there's less you know financial burden to the community. He also feels like, so far, they've saved about 600 lives in New York uh, be- over the one-year period because of reducing overdoses. So my question is... Now that's it. That's just what this article says. I don't know that that's proof necessarily, but that's that's his review of it. But it's an interesting question, and there are 100 centers around the world that are doing it. So it's not just a one-off kind of deal. It's it must be popular enough that people around the world are putting time and resources into it. So my question is, what do you think about that, just opinion-wise? And would that be something anybody in this room would like to see? Here in Salt Lake City. Well, I'm going to pass this over to my friend Seneca. <clears throat> Just for the fact, and we're going to hear this in his story a little bit later, but we'll talk about it now. Yeah. You spent two months on Skid Row in L.A. Yes. Uh, openly using. Yes. Uh, and I assume everybody else around you for the most part was? Pretty much, yeah. Uh, was it a safe environment? It was not safe, no. 
Um, there was a lot of people around, but back to that, if you're talking about like microdosing mushrooms, psilocybin, like little nope. things like this, that, this, no, this, this study is, is just, just you're using heroin, whatever. You're using illegal drugs. It's maybe they're not, putting a band. It's not a therapeutic yeah, environment. I think they're putting a band over the the problem. This is yeah. a bad it's choice. Not going. But what to, about his claim that it helps reduce overdose hmm. risk? If someone's going to use anyway. So here's the here's the theory behind this because I the reason I bring this up is it it doesn't sit right with us right yeah. but the idea is hey these people are going to use anyway in your community they're gonna they're out there using they're littering parks with with drug paraphernalia mm-hmm. uh, they're not safe for themselves probably not for other people as well they're in a high risk situation we've talked to a lot of them over the so four it's like years a free here. zone so it's like you come in here. And you're safe. You're not going to be arrested or anything. And you can use and have a place to be safe and clean. And there are medical people that can check on you. Yeah. So, well, so it's, it's, the, it's, the idea is it cleans up the community and keeps. Uh, we do have they have a overdoses. needle exchange in Salt Lake City? They do. Okay. Yeah. So they do that. They have those in L.A. <clears throat> you know, it was open in L.A. I got busted. I don't know how many times, literally shooting up by While the police, up, and yeah. they just said. Put that away and, and let me go. You know, it's, it was oh, it's okay. that kind of environment in Los Angeles. Well, I don't they know can't, how they can't arrest City. everybody. They fill they up can't. the jails. No, the jails fast. are full. Yeah. You know, they, they can't. And we have overcrowding issues. Yes. And too. so it's a huge problem. And then you introduce fentanyl into the mix. And, you know, I don't know when that study was. but uh, Last year. Was it last year? Yeah. So uh, Narcan, you know, also is another big one that helps. Mm-hmm. Um, fentanyl is just a killer, you know, and, and it's, it's in everything. I watched people when I was down there. So that was four or five years ago when that kind of got introduced into L.A. And I mean, I watched people drop left and right. Mm. You know, I saved I always had Narcan in my pack mm. and I saved like 30 plus people's lives. With that's Narcan. awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. CPR. I think yeah. that's wonderful. And I think the study, I mean, I understand the reasoning and the thought behind it. And I think there's probably a lot more to it than we don't know. But it sounds kind of like childproof in your house. You know what I mean? Uh, just giving them a safe zone to do that. Now, if you introduce therapy, you introduce yeah. uh, options for them to get out of that. But if this is just a, a, a free zone. Yeah. I mean, the whole goal is to get people off drugs. So so that was, that's my thought. And that's kind of part of this is that. They have resources available to them if they want to start to, you know, we talk about pre-contemplation and contemplation leading to behavior change. Yeah. Like if they're, if you're an addict and you're in that mindset, but you're feeling hopeless, desperate on the streets, you're, you're using, and, and, and I don't know anybody who's at that level who's enjoying their use, right? It's, it's not a party anymore. No, it's a misery. But it becomes they're so scared of it's the survival. detox. Right. They're yeah. so scared yeah. of the detox. So I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm intrigued by this thought of like, creating a safe space that's medically supervised with options for people to investigate the idea of getting clean and sober, what that would look like. Because a lot of addicts, I mean, what, what goes along, what mindset goes along with addiction? Hopelessness. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're hopeless. I'll never be able to afford it. I'll never be able yeah. to do it. Nobody cares about me. Nobody, nobody loves me enough. Again. Right? No, I mean, that's part of what keeps people from seeking treatment. So I think this is an interesting idea. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know if every community could embrace it because of cultural beliefs and things like that, but yeah. the reality is things like needle exchanges have been shown to to make improvements in communities' lives and people's yeah. lives. This is kind of taking that to another level, but mm-hmm. uh, but New York's trying it, and it seems to be working. Yeah. So. I, you, know, you could debate a lot of this stuff in that article, but when it gets to the point of saving 600 lives, 
Yeah, that's hard to. It's all worth that's, it. That's hard to to overlook. And the reality is, um, uh, punishment doesn't create uh, sobriety. No, no, that that we know, and and that I think we need to look past as a society. We need to look past just this punishment mentality because it's illegal. We're just going to punish, and and addiction needs to be looked at differently. And I'm open to exploring ideas that are. Be, go past punishment and do other things. I love it. Yeah. Hey, so you've been listening to Project Recovery. You heard a little bit from our guest, Seneca Higley. He's going to be our guest today. We're going to find out more about his life and what he's doing. But before we get to that real quick, you went to dinner with my mom last night. Did she pay or did you? She did. Yeah. Good old Robin. <laughs> Stick around. More Project Recovery. We'll be right back. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Our guest today, Seneca Higley. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. I'm going to show you how. One I'm... of the best names we've had on our show, Oh, Seneca's by the way. cool. Yes. And, but real, well, the whole thing. Wait, hold on. Seneca Higley? Come on. Hey, Seneca. That's, awesome. That's like a character in a novel. Thank give you. give Thank him a little you. auction chant right now. Come on, just do it. Let's just... I knew this was yeah, going to come. Yeah, come on, just do it, do it, do it. Do it. Hey, and how many dollars here now? Send so, you that $8,500. Send me the here to be a seven half. 9000 here, 9000 here, 9000 here. Sold eighty seven fifty. All right, let's get back to the podcast. Wow, <laughs> that is amazing. So he's an auctioneer. Oh. I have known about Holy Seneca cow. and known Seneca for a majority of my life. And this is going to show you how Ogden this podcast is today. <laughs> Seneca is currently living in the house next to my mother. Renting it for six months. Okay. We just recently purchased his father's home up in Lava. <laughs> lava. Nice. And uh, he went to dinner last night with my older brother and my mom for my brother's birthday. Which I used to go duck hunting with Yancey 25 years ago. Yeah. Wow. And so... Uh, you guys are like... You guys are like... He's like brother. brothers. He's yeah. a brother. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's... He's a family friend, and we love him. And when he, I found out he was going to be back in town because he bounces back between here and uh, Lake Havasu, uh, I was like, we got to get you on the podcast. And so we we're lucky enough that it works today. Awesome. So for those who don't know, and I'm going to hear some of this for the first time as well, where does the story of Seneca Higley begin? Well, it starts uh, at a y- as a young kid. You know, I was uh, four and a half, five years old when my mom died. Um, and so, you know, right out the shoot, you know, life was kind of unfair to me, um, insecure. Uh, my father was a good man, but what was he, he didn't know what to do with a five-year-old boy and his wife just died and all he knew was how to work. And so it was, uh, you know, it was a tough upbringing. Uh, I thought it was normal 
until I got into recovery and I looked back and I'm like, that was so dysfunctional. Did you have siblings? I did. I had a half brother and sister from my mom. So they uh, moved away. And then I have a younger brother. It's like 10 years younger. But he was never really involved. That might have been hard because now the family went, you know, in a very small. Absolutely. Yeah, just me. You know, you said something that's interesting and um, you thought it was normal. I thought my childhood was normal. Uh, Most people think their childhood is normal until you talk to other people, you know, and you go. (laughs) But then it makes you beg the question, what is normal? Uh, You only know what you know. Right. Yeah. And, you know, but here you are living with your dad, uh, trying to find your way in this world. Just lost your mom. Do you remember losing your mom? You know, I remember traumatic memories like little video clips um and they were all of fights of i rolled down the stairs when i was three years old and had my first concussion mm-hmm. i remember that to where the lights went out uh, i broke my arm when i was four um my story has a lot of broken bones in it by the way um and so you know when they'd fight you know things like that i remember the last night my mom uh when she left i had this feeling that I was never going to see her again. And I cried and I threw a fit and she left and she got in a rollover accident on the way back and died. Rollover oh. accident. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> so, you know, that was, it was tough. It was super tough. So what that. was your upbringing like with just you and your father? <clears throat> well, he was either working or at the bar. And so there was a lot of late nights, you know, when I'm eight, nine, ten years old, 11, uh, where I'm home alone. And uh, just absolutely scared to death, you know, uh, out in the country. And all I remember is just calling Where my was dad. this? That you in Hooper. I grew up in Hooper, Utah. Okay. When it was country. When it was country. When it was country, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so a lot of time by yourself. A lot of time by myself. So <clears throat> you, you taking care of yourself, getting everything, making your own meals, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff? Yep. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, which as a kid, does it really matter? You know, you, you really don't know. Like I was fine with like those, uh, GI Joe, you know, those, those army men, yeah, army absolutely men. man. And it's in a BB gun and I was set for, you know, the day. Um, so, you know, money didn't really affect me that much, but, uh, I started getting into sports. Um, I was a baseball football player. Like most kids played basketball and, uh, that led into high school, um, where I started, I, okay, let's move back. Okay. So my dad did a lot of things that I didn't like. And so as a kid, I recognized that with alcohol. So I did not want to drink. I hated alcohol. I was never going to drink. When I was in 10th grade, one of my friends spiked my mellow yellow with Everclear. Mm. And I'll never forget when that was going down, touched my mouth and was going down that warm sensation. And then almost like the immediate, like, Oh my God, this is awesome. Euphoria. So I, you know, I knew I was an alcoholic right off the bat, Mm. but it was, you know, I didn't start drinking all the time, just every once in a while. Um, Pretty normal high school. Pretty normal high school. Yeah. I think that happens a lot for kids uh, who grow up with an alcoholic parent is they see that behavior and they see what it causes uh, and they, they vow to themselves when they're younger, I, I'm never going to do that. I mm-hmm. pray to God that it happens with my kids. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I really do. Like, I hope that my daughters yeah. and my son don't go down the same road I do. Yeah, but unfortunately, like like your story, Seneca, if you have that predisposition for alcohol to be your DOC, mm-hmm. then when there is an opportunity to taste it, to have it, sometimes 
that resolve goes away. So mm-hmm. I think educating kids beyond just their own, you know, like you, you talk to your kids a lot about it. Yeah. And, and your kids have been exposed to the recovery world. But I can heavily. tell you, my parents never talked to me about it. Yeah. And it wasn't until my dad did this very podcast that I found out that his dad was an alcoholic. Mm. So you didn't even know that. No. Wow. I mean, he I died when I was a young age, and yeah. we didn't hear much about my grandpa, uh, and I didn't know him all that well. But to find out he was an alcoholic on this podcast, I was like, huh. Well, well getting over that shame-based culture is, is important. Yeah. So the high school years pretty good for you? They were. They were. Uh, we sold our place in Hooper when I was in 11th grade or 10th grade. And moved over to 21st Street in Ogden. We had a public auto auction there. And I lived up top of it. And so immediately we started having parties. And uh, then the weekends we started partying a lot. Um, And everything was kind of associated with alcohol. You know, I worked hard during the week. Drank hard with the boys. Had fun. And that kind of carried over into... When I went to auction school, when I was 17, I graduated high school when I was 17. And so did you graduate early because you just didn't see a a sense in it or you knew what you wanted to do and pursue it? I was one of those guys that uh, halfway through the year, um, I didn't have to go to, you know, senior year. And uh, you had enough credits. Had enough credits. Yeah. 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 And so I started working a lot. um, And uh, God, sorry. You're fine. And um, so you decided to, to, to go to auction school. Decided to go to auction school. Okay, before While we get, I was going to Weber State. Before we get to that, during high school, did you have any problems that alcohol or drugs, or was it just alcohol? Did you have any problems that, you know, that kind of creeped in or presented themselves? None. Nope. None. Just, That's dangerous for a young guy because <laughs> then you think, oh, it's not a problem. Yeah. Living yeah, a pretty gonna, charmed life. Living yeah. a pretty charmed life. Yeah. yeah. It's, I think a little bit better if kids get in trouble early. Yeah. And then they might realize that it's a problem. But if you're doing all the big stuff, graduating early, playing sports, mm-hmm. having friends, and partying hard. It seems like everything's okay. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. So you go to auction school while attending Weber State University. Yes. Billings, Montana. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. Auction school? Oh, yeah. Did you know that? Yeah. Casey? My dad went to it. Really? Yeah. How did I not know that was a thing? <laughs> Another part of the small world. Yeah. yeah. I thought maybe if you could just talk fast then. <laughs> well, no, there's a whole cadence and math and you're finding your, I mean, it's it's a thing. And then wow. and, and there's a ton of money in it, which we're going to find out. You found yourself very successful. I remember my dad telling me once about Seneca Higley and he's like, I met this kid. And his cadence is amazing. He's wonderful. He can auction so beautifully. But the coolest thing about him is he can go from English to Spanish, Spanish to English, back and forth flawlessly. And my dad, who'd been auctioning (laughs) his whole life and was very good at it, said, this kid is amazing. Wow. There you go. (laughs) So I got back from auction school and was going to Weber State. And I started doing auctions a couple of weeks because I knew people in the industry. And... Before, probably when I was 20 years old, um, oh, I quit Weber State because I started making enough money. I started making real good money, and I'm like, I can always go back to college, right? Right, right. And so I um, started auctioneering full-time, and that career, uh, I was doing five auctions a week probably, um, 
and that kind of it was where I started seeing a lot more partying, where, you know, I worked in Vegas every Thursday night and Friday. So I was going to ask, so, is it like a gig thing where it's like you, you're like you get a reputation, you start absolutely. getting asked to go to bigger auctions, that kind of stuff? Okay. Yes, yes. And I start, you know, started as a, as a ringman uh, to get in and then become an auctioneer. And so it takes some time. But um, a ringman yeah. is the guy that sits around and goes, yep. Yep, bit and spotter. That, and that gives, I've never been to an auction. Oh, and I just fine. realized that. And, and so you go, yep, and then that gives him. <laughs> I've the seen them on TV. That's it. We got to get you. When I say yep, that gives him the the okay to move on to a higher number. That uh, means I've already got somebody at fifty five. Let's uh, move to okay. sixty, and then he'll keep the chanting going. It's like this whole culture. I've never, oh, I never know anything, about. and it's absolutely. wonderful. And he's being modest. He was the Wonder Boy. He was doing well, wonderful. It sounds things. like your dad threw pretty big compliments, and he was making yeah. really good money. He was making good money, uh, working in Phoenix for a year, Utah auto auctions, the ones around here, public sales. Me and my dad had a public auto auction as well, um, so I was working six, seven days a week. Um, but, but let me ask you this: How long are you working on that day? Like four hours. Okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> so you're making big money. Yeah, you're working lot of uh-huh. days but you have a lot of free hours absolutely it like. yeah absolutely but what you don't understand is those four hours are intense yeah oh, i know energy. i believe it but and you still know what I mean? it's four hours there's 20 other hours in the and day. i know a little bit about a story but this plays into it because for those four hours six days a week you need to be on mm-hmm. and if you're not on you're not making your people money yeah and and, and, and yeah. people are going hey what's happened to you man mm-hmm. and then i'm assuming uh, and I don't want to tell your story mm-hmm. that the nights bleed into the days. The nights bleed into the days. The the everybody would say you go out with and party with the boys. You get up and you work with the men. And that was kind of the deal, you know. It's like play hard, work hard, go hard all the time. That was my mentality. And it's even to this day, it's still I have to sit back, slow myself. And pause, mm-hmm. you know, and and thank God sobriety has taught me a lot of those lessons, um, just about pausing, you know, going through the twelve steps of AA. That's what I did, twelve steps of AA, um, and just learning everything about why you act this way and how to do contrary action, basically. All right, we're jumping the shark here because we want to go back to where it begins to get messy for you. Okay, oh, it was uh, when I was working in Vegas. Um, I started taking like a couple pain pills and a Xanax before each auction. Not because they were prescribed? Not because they were prescribed. Just because it made me feel kind of, it made me feel good. When I wasn't feeling good, a Loratab would get me going to where I'd have energy. and I, Feeling and, good like hungover? No, kinda? feeling good like let's go. Okay. Like excited. All you know, right. I felt ease. I felt at ease. Now, are you a person that dealt with any anxiety growing up? Do you feel like any, there was, well, any I tell you because of my, my home life situation, I know that I had horrible anxiety. I had stomach problems from the stress. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I had that my whole life. And I think we see that a lot with folks that self-medicate for their anxiety. And mm-hmm. by the way, if, if you're a listener and you've never had anxiety on that level, <laughs> you count yourself lucky because anxiety is pretty miserable. So I could see uh, how when you have to perform, yeah. you might want to feel your your best and, yes. and drop all that anxious stuff. Yes. Yeah. And so that progressed over the years. Um, you know, I was 30, 30 years old. I was actually in the best shape of my life, physically, mentally, financially. I just got married for, for the first time. Um, everything was great. But I was still doing a couple of those lore tabs before an auction. Well, I ran out, and one of my buddies had an Oxycontin. Yeah, okay. And 
That literally wrecked my life. Oxycontin, 80s, back in the day where you could snort them. Mm -hmm. And within a year and a half, I was divorced. I had lost almost every job and financially bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt. Of course, I wasn't spiritual back then. I didn't believe in anything, really. Um, And so I was just, I, I got divorced and now I'm on my own again and I'm trying to get back, you know. Financially ruined. How much do you think you spent? I bet you I spent a hundred and hundred thousand dollars of money in on Oxycontin eighty. Yeah, yeah, I believe it. I believe it. Yeah, they were expensive back then. Yeah, <clears throat> you know, and and then of course, what happens after the money runs out? You start, turn to heroin. So, I feel like within a year, how quick did everything fall apart? I mean, do you remember? Walk me through a couple of the scenarios. Start with what it was like on that first OxyContin. Because I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, that's a big jump from a lower tab to an OxyContin. What was that first one like? Well, I split it in half the first time. And it was just like I felt better than ever. You know, it was like 10 times what the lower tab was. And so I wanted that feeling again and again, you know. Yeah. And that's really when the addiction went into f- full gear. Yeah. And what, I mean, how, and so to Casey's question, how, how did that, how quickly did that unravel for you? Within a year, like a year, yeah. within a year. But so you're saying I, a year, but you spent a hundred thousand dollars, uh, lost majority of your jobs and a wife and a wife. And so, I mean, who, I, I, and okay. a beautiful wife. Yeah. What was the first to go? The wife, the wife, then the job, then I moved out and was back living in the uh, condo at the auction. Um, How know. did it affect your marriage? Like what? Like she I left, tried to hide right? it. Okay. I tried to hide it, you know, but she was a special agent. So <laughs> <laughs> What, seriously? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I don't think I knew that part of it. I better not say her name, but yeah, <laughs> no, she was a special agent. She was a special agent, <laughs> yeah. so, so hiding she, things from her was <laughs> not so easy to do. I'm pretty sure she took my hair follicle and I had it tested for drugs. You know? So you were married to CSI. I mean, yeah. yeah. Okay. Wow. So she so she just and and look, I don't I don't I don't blame anybody who wants out. No. You know what I mean? No. no. And I'm sure you don't blame her. I absolutely don't. And she probably gave you a shot to get it right. She it, didn't. But <laughs> <laughs> Special agent Casey. Yeah. No. But uh-uh. she just says, I don't want a part of this. This is not in my life, absolutely. and I'm done, and I'm out. Absolutely. And, and I, you, can't, you can't hold that against somebody. No. No, I mean, I think that's it, that sounds harsh. Yeah. However, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Seneca, probably somebody who knew what her boundaries were and was very strict about keeping her boundaries and goals and priorities in life and, absolutely and that just didn't fit her her, her nope and vision i mean for when herself. it was done it was done and she yeah. moved on and yeah. and so i was i was that's when i experienced probably the worst anxiety in my life i was having panic attacks you know because i didn't want it to end but at the time i couldn't take accountability that i caused this you know mm-hmm. and so i was still running and gunning you brought up something because i remember feeling that for somebody and, and i think we're cut from the same cloth uh that we're fixers and we can usually fix anything. Mm. And then when you find a come against something that you can't fix and the first time in your life, you're like, Oh, it doesn't matter what I do. Nope. I'm not going to be able to get back what I had. Nope. And, and when you have to sit down and, and accept that 
and realize that it is your fault and there's no going back. I mean, yeah. that's a that's a tough spot to be in. Yeah. Yes, it was um, very tough. And so, yeah, and so, so I, I continued my my path. In fact, I actually, you know, you didn't consider that we, a rock bottom. Well, I'll tell you what I did. I literally told myself I'm going to quit Oxycontin. And I did. And I locked myself upstairs in that condo for seven days. And at the time, they were putting these pellets in your arm that were like an opiate blocker. Mm, um, yeah. I can't remember the name of it. But you had to be off of everything for seven days. And so I did. And I went up the, and I went to the doctor and I got that pellet put in because um, I was serious about quitting. And... Uh, <laughs> So they put it in. They tell me, okay, if you don't get sick within the first two hours, you're going to be fine. I get home and I'm like looking at my clock, like, because I cut it right to the seven days, you know. And so I get home and I'm looking at the clock. It's like two hours and 20 minutes. And I'm like, good, that's great. All of a sudden, I go into this withdrawal that was just worse than any sickness I've ever had, uh. you know. And so it hit me and it was like two, two hours or whatever. And then I started feeling better. Um, but what it did to me is it gave me like full body restless body syndrome. And so I had that for like the next three days and it was driving me crazy. So what did I do? Started drinking and smoking crack <laughs> to try to make it back. I, I went right to the crack. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was with you with the drinking. I was like, I can see the reason. I thought he was going to say weed, <laughs> yeah. but he went right to crack. You know, but, how, how, how do you make that leap? Oh, I was in a lot. I was in just. I was in agony. My whole body was just vibrating for three days. In so a to row. be fair, I've talked to a few people that have had similar experiences, mm-hmm. and it just sounds like a living hell. Yeah, and it was. Yeah. And so I was doing whatever I could to try to eliminate or make that go away a little bit. And this literally went on for a month, where I, I smoked and drank every day for a month, and then I think my father intervened and. Because I was still selling at IAA, I was like 148 pounds, looked like shit, and my boss, good boss, he uh, he said, "You're going to treatment and you're going to get help, and I'll hold your job for when you get back, but you're going to go to treatment." And so I went to treatment for six, 90 days when I was 32 years old. It was the first time I ever went to treatment, and. You know, it was great. I got healthy. I gained back all that weight. Everything was good. And I moved to a sober living there in L.A. And on like the second to last day before I was kind of come home and go back to live in Utah, a kid came in with a couple Laura tabs. And he handed me two. And without even thinking, I took those two drink and put them down. And that obsession was back just like that. Oh. Just like that. And so, you know, I struggled with this off and on for 10 years, you know, where I'd be clean or, I, you know, I've got arrested, gone to jail. I've had four DUIs in my life, well, you know. Um, so alcohol has been a problem. Um, is that one thing you always went back to to self-medicate was the alcohol? Yeah. Yeah. You know, in, 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 the, in the world of addiction, like, you know, my DOC was alcohol. And it sounds like yours toward the end was as well. Um, but alcohol gets a pass for heavy narcotics users. You know what I mean? It's like, so 
I was smoking crack. I was doing meth or I was doing heroin, but I'm not doing that anymore. I'm just drinking. Yeah, and, like it's seen as not it, as bad. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and be like, well, and so they'll go like, well, he's not doing that anymore. He's just drinking. Well, eventually, whatever you're doing at the end is going to be the one that brings you down. Right. Uh, but, you yeah. know. Yeah. So, um, anyhow, you know, 10 years go by, get in trouble. Uh, did you spend some time in jail? Yeah, spent some time in jail, 90 days here, 90 days there. Um, and then uh, when, it, when it came to prior to homelessness, uh, me and my father, you know, been trying off and on, off and on. And, and our relationship is finally getting pretty damaged. And uh, we're in, in Lake Havasu, Arizona. And, you know, my father said, I'm already lost and broken, Kay. I've lost all of my friends. Um, they pushed me away. I hate myself. I don't want to live anymore. And my dad comes to me and he says, I want you to do a DNA test because I don't think you're my son. Oh, man. <clears throat> and this broke me. Just out right? of the blue? Well, it, not really out of the blue, but yeah, out of the blue. And so I just told him, I says, hey, I says, uh, I said, let's do it. I already know what the answer is, you know. And so we did it, came back 100%. He's my dad. And I said, I'm leaving. And he, uh, he goes, what do you mean, where are you going? I says, I'm just leaving. I says, you don't get it. What you did, what you said to me, I was already broken prior to that. Yeah. Now I'm, <laughs> I, I don't wow. even want, I said, I'm leaving. I'm going to go find myself. I'm going to go on this spiritual journey. And so I did. I left and I went to Phoenix, Arizona. And that was the start of like my spiritual journey, um, which led to heavy drug use and alcoholism. <laughs> well, we're going to hear more about that. Uh, you're listening to Project Recovery. That is Seneca Higley. Uh, and it's fascinating. And stick around. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today, Seneca Higley, is just about to tell us about the time he goes on a spiritual journey that involves heavy narcotics, alcoholism, and homelessness. Did I get it right? Absolutely. So you find yourself in Arizona. Yes. Uh, why is that the beginning place for a spiritual journey? Well, it was the closest big city. And so my father's girlfriend at the time gave me a ride there and kicked me out and was happy to have me gone. You know, so, so I you just loaded up a backpack or I I took a bunch of my stuff. I had enough money for a week at a hotel. So I my thought was I'm gonna go out and get hired on an auction here, you know, and then I'm gonna get a place to live and this. So I, I had this thought that maybe it was gonna work out. Well, I had some I had some uh people that shouldn't have been in my room in my room couple uh people that that strong-armed robbed me took everything i had now in my safe i had my passport my social security card birth certificate money so everything was instantly gone so right off the bat day six i am literally and beat up um out the gate with nothing just a a backpack and, and a couple you know changes of clothes and so i hung around um Phoenix for about a month, um, two drive-bys, got jumped again, and so I went to Vegas. Well, how do you live for a month in uh, Arizona without a job, a driver's license, cash, a place to stay? You know what? You get resourceful when you're homeless. It's like survival kind of kicks in. You know, uh, I didn't like to beg for money, uh, but I had to a couple times, Um, and I developed this really good... You know, I've made amends to all these places, but I developed a really good, uh, 
I, I could steal alcohol really good. And so I would sell it. And that was part of my hustle. And, you know, I'm not proud of that, but, you know. Did the auctioneer skills come in and handy at all when you were, when you were <laughs> hey, I forgot. I forgot the best part of the story. So when I got robbed, I had had dentures at that time. And I had had them out, and they were soaking in this bag. Well, they stole everything, so they stole that bag. And so I oh. went two and a half years with no teeth, oh. zero teeth. So... If you can imagine how my self-esteem was, yeah. um, just how low I was, I was already broken, you know? Yeah. I mean, just lost. And so... So when you say you got everything stolen, including your teeth. Including my teeth. Wow. So you spent a month homeless uh, on the streets of uh, Phoenix, uh, and then you decide you're going to go to a better place. Going to go to Vegas. Why know? Vegas? <clears throat> well, because I got the tattoo on my arm, you know? Like I, worked there for, I worked there for 13 years. Well, I found out really quick, when you don't have money in Vegas, it's not that fun. I got arrested three times in three days, and, and uh, you know, they got that facial wreck on all the casinos. If you're a Steve, at a Steve Wynn or uh, one of those other guys that owns four different casinos, that facial recognition stuff it really works. It huh? really works, yeah. I got arrested three times in three days. So... Uh, I, my brother works in Vegas, and I, I called him, and I said, hey, can you um, help me get to L.A.? And so I went and stayed with him for a night, and he's like, are you sure you really want to do this? Because my, my older brother lives in uh, Overton. And he says, you know, you are you sure you want to do this? And I said, yeah. And so he gave me a bus ticket, and off I went to L.A. And uh, Okay, now, now why L.A.? Well, because it was sunny. And I had gone to treatment there the first time. Well, I got to give it to you. If you're going to be homeless, oh, you know absolutely. I mean? might as well be homeless in somewhere that's sunny. I mean, yeah. I can't imagine being homeless in Salt Lake oh, City in yeah, the winter. Yeah. You know, so I went towards the beach. Yeah. <clears throat> got off and, and uh, the bus station's right downtown. It's down by uh, Skid Row. And I bounced around downtown for about a week. And then I, I made, I can't remember how the conversation sparked, but there was a guy named Batman on Fifth and Crocker <laughs> that ran this block. Okay. He oh, ran this block. I yeah. saw him hit a woman or a man every day. Well, I got to talking to him because I was trying to get some drugs. And I don't know how the, the conversation started, but he was in the corporate world five years prior. Really? Something, Batman. something happened. Now he's like running Fifth and Crocker downtown Skid Row, and he was a bad dude. Like it was a black block. I was like the only white boy on this block, so he kind of protected me. I ended up staying there two years or two months. Two months, sorry. <clears throat> and then uh, I got ran out of there. Like I literally thought I was going to get killed. <laughs> it was not so. Good. For those who don't know, and I'm, and I'm assuming that's probably majority of the listeners. Sure. What does Skid Row look like? Skid Row, uh, this was five years ago, so Skid Row, there was probably, I don't know, 500 people in this six-block district area. There's a mission, um, and it is just poverty. It's poverty, it's drugs, it's violence, um, and... Do the police I, I see, come in there very often? They come kinda, through. They come yeah. through once in a while. But, you know, people are up 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, I have vivid memories of at 3, 4 in the morning just looking out my tent, watching guys go by and watching rats come out of the, the gutters and go around my tent and over to my neighbor because I, I always kept my place clean, you know. Mm. But literally, they would. They would go around my tent. Did you feel safe? Or safer? You know, it, this is why most homeless people are on something. 
you have to be high to survive in that atmosphere. Like it is brutal. You know, you're constantly worrying about theft. You're constantly worrying about getting in fights, getting beat up, getting killed, getting shot, stabbed. Um, so it's, it's just, you have to almost stay high. Well, it's a it's traumatic really experience. It, it is. You know, you, you can never relax. You can never really sleep. Yep. Uh, and so that makes sense that uh, if you weren't addicted when you got there, you'd be yes quickly. Yes. Yeah. And my heroin use really started right there from that point on. Skid Row. You were telling me off air that you'd have to sleep with your backpack underneath you. Uh, you told me about one time you and your friends got robbed in broad daylight. Tell me about that. <laughs> well, we had been up a few days because um, it's tough to sleep. You know, you're always watching your back. And we fell asleep at a Walgreens sidewalk on the back there. And I don't know how many hours we were asleep, but woke up and both of our packs had been taken while we were sleeping. You know, that's in broad daylight. Someone just came you know, up and took it. That's just how it was. Yeah. You know, that's just how it was. You had to protect your stuff, you know. I, you know, I've, I've been stabbed. I got stabbed by a guy named King, big black guy, running the block. You know, he was in a psychosis and, and jumped me, beat me up and stabbed me, you know, in the arm. Thank God I blocked it. But, uh, you know, it's just, it's a rough life. So I think people are curious, how do you find yourself getting out of Skid Row? Because, I mean, to be honest with you, like, I thought Skid Row was just an 80s metal band. Like, I mean, I, mean, I, I, didn't, realize, I, mean, I didn't realize that it was, like, an actual thing. I think it was, I always thought it was something that people would describe as the bottom. I, like, I didn't know Skid Row was an actual place. I was like, hey, you got to be careful. You'll end up on Skid Row. Like, that's where... Right. Things go to die. But it sounds like it's a, alive and kicking. It's a place where people go. It is. And, and you should see it now. I actually took a, a video when I was just down there two weeks ago. I'll show it to you. Um, there is just an, uh, 10 times the people uh, there than, a, than when I was there. Really? Yeah. So just yeah, in the last of COVID, five years. Because of COVID. Yes. And, uh, yep. It's incredible. A um, lot of hunger and just poverty. You know, it's really sad. And I think that's why I have, yeah, I have a lot of empathy for the homeless. Yeah. You know, because I was one of them. I went through that. You know, there, I met a lot of good people that were homeless because they they weren't just drug addicts. You know, I, one of my buddies owned a restaurant and his wife got killed and it set him in kind of a tailspin, lost the restaurant, yeah. ended up on the streets. You know, I know there was another guy that his family got killed in a car wreck, wife and two kids. Oh. He ended up on the streets, you know, so yeah. there's. You have to have empathy for some of these people because you don't know what happened. Well, I, I, what, what I got agree with that. And you in know? fact, if you think about the logic of it, nobody chooses that life, right? No, like absolutely Nobody not. wakes up and thinks, you know, things are pretty good. I think I'm going to go live down on Skid Row. I'm going to get that right. corner spot. So yeah. you're absolutely right that there are reasons why people are there. And if we can't understand them, we should at least not judge them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how do you find your way out of Skid Row? Well, there was, well, first off, let me just tell you how many times I survived. I, I overdosed 13 times that I remember while I was in LA. Wow. I've had, I've been hit with Narcan like 28 times. The first time they had to hit me with Narcan seven times. I came, I, I finally woke up after 30 minutes. They said I was gray, not blue. I was gray, gray. came out of it. And the worst withdrawal I've ever had in my life. I was just convulsing, um, just horrible, horrible. But um, 
so getting through all of that, I started, and this is going to sound a little weird, but this is where my spirituality started. I started having these weird feelings that it was like a bird in the sky was watching me, like somebody was watching over me and something good was going to happen. And my friends would ask that question, are you ever going to get off Skid Row? Like, are you ever going to, do you think you'll ever see yourself being a normal citizen again? And I'd say, you know, I think my father's going to hire some private investigators and find me. And they'd be like, okay, whatever. So at this point, your dad has no idea where you are. No idea. I've been off the grid for two years. And... Well, that's exactly what was happening. Uh, my dad had hired a couple investigators to find me. So and you had that premonition. I had that premonition. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Wow. And I'd have uh, guys because they were they were looking for me for quite a while. And some of my friends would come up and they'd be like, "Hey, dude, there's some investigators looking for you." And I'd be like, "So when you're it's talking okay. about it's okay, I know what it's for." You know, I wasn't scared. Oh, you didn't. No. You weren't worried. When you're talking no. about friends, you're talking about friends on Skid Row. Because <clears throat> at this point, have you? No, I, I had moved to Venice Beach by this time. Okay. Yeah, I lived on the beach for nine months. <laughs> we made it to up. the beach, <laughs> living the life. <laughs> but I mean, had you cut off all communication with back home and friends and family, or did you ever get a chance to call them and say, "Hey, look, I'm still alive"? You know what? I called my dad once, um, about two months after I'd left. Just to let him know I was okay. And then I remember it was like Christmas and I was going to call and I never did. And then it ended up, it was Christmas again and I was going to call and I never did. And so I was, I was off the grid for two and a half, two years. Wow. Yeah. So these were, these were friends that you met on the streets. You know, there was four guys that I literally ran with for a year and a half. Yeah. That I would call friends, you know? Oh yeah. But I mean, yeah. they were struggling with the same Absolutely. struggle as you. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And I saw some of them after I got sober, like six months after I got sober, <clears throat> and they were crossing the street in front of me, and I started crying. Like, they looked horrible. The meth mm. and the heroin had just, I mean, destroyed them. Yeah. And it was so sad to me. So um, you're living on the beach in Venice. Uh, people are walking around asking about you. You had a premonition that your dad was going to hire a private investigator to come find you. Yep. Do they eventually find you? They do. I'm on Venice Boulevard one night, and this van pulls up, and the uh, guy comes out and says, hey, do you guys know where uh, Seneca Higley is? And I said, you got him. And they showed me a picture of my, my daughter and my dad together, and I just broke down. And I was so ready. You know, I jumped in that van, <clears throat> and they took me, uh, took me to rehab. That's amazing. Yep. And I was ready, you know. <clears throat> so, I mean, you're getting emotional now. So, they showed you a picture of your daughter. And how long had it been since you seen your daughter? Uh, two and a half years. And there's your daughter with your father. Yeah. And it just wrecked you. Yeah, it wrecked me. But, and, <clears throat> you know, so I, I get there and it was still hard for me. I didn't call my dad for like three weeks, um, I was just in this state of mind that I, you know, I had been on drugs for two and a half years and like this horrible environment. And here I am in this rehab and I just didn't know what to say. I was still kind of angry. You know, I felt like this is his way of, you know, making amends for the DNA deal. And, you know, so it took me a minute to start thinking clearly for sure. (sighs) 
But so I went. Well, to, I mean, this just the stress alone of living on the streets that long yeah. uh, takes a toll on a person's mind. Yeah. Not to mention trying to detox the chemicals from your body. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm surprised it only took that long before you could call. Yeah. yeah. What did you say when you called? I just said, "How you doing?" <laughs> and my dad wasn't much of a talker. And for literally for about six months, he really didn't say much. It was more of a yes or no. You know, I'd ask him how he's doing, this and that. And so about seven months into sobriety, I I asked him, I says, are you ever going to talk to me? And he goes, "Uh, well, you're probably just going to lie to me. And I said, Dad, I am working a program. I'm seven months sober. I'm doing everything I can to get my life back and to become that kid that you were, that son that you know, you know? Um, and I said, but I need you to communicate with me so that we can work on this together because I can't do it alone. And so he finally started talking to me and uh, we started repairing our relationship, you know? Good. So how long did you spend in rehab? I spent uh, 90 days and then I spent nine months in a sober living and then I got a sober roommate for a year and then... My dad needed me, and so I left L.A. and went to take care of him. And I worked at, I worked at ARC Treatment Place while I was there. You know, I, I loved it. I enjoyed it. I was thriving. You know, I really was. I was thriving. It was probably <clears throat> some of the best times that I've felt so far. You know, I was healthy spiritually, mentally, uh, financially. Everything was going good. Um, then my father asked me like three times. He's like, I think I need your help. And so I left LA and I went back to Idaho to take care of him. And, Tell me uh, about the, the time you moved in with your dad. <clears throat> it was challenging. I was ready. Okay. I was ready. I had a strong recovery. Um, but my father was an alcoholic and he drank vodka every day. He was, everybody knew him. He always had his, his, uh, flask with him. Um, and so he was just, he couldn't walk very good. He was having heart issues. Everything was kind of breaking down. So it was challenging, but I never had the urge to drink. There was vodka in front of me every day, but I never had the urge to drink hmm. the entire time that he was, he was alive. You know, <clears throat> how do you account for that? Well, I had a strong recovery. I did, as, I did the 12 steps. I had a sponsor. I had a Zoom group that I did every night. Um, and we moved to uh, Havasu, and I did the same thing there. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then we moved back to, uh, to Idaho. My dad was a snowbird, so we go back and forth. Um, you know, I think it was my higher power. You know, I, was, I pray. I, I believe in... My God is the universe, light, energy, the angels. You know, I've, I've been in <laughs> three rollover accidents where I should have died. Um, I've overdosed over 13 times. Been stabbed by a guy named King. Been stabbed by a guy named King. You know, I've broke my neck twice, my back once. I've broken over 42 bones in my body. I have four plates uh, in my body and screws. Um, I've had over 500 stitches in my head, (laughs) my torso. Um, You know, there's like this purpose. There's this reason I'm here. And I think it was to help my father when he needed me the most, you know, towards the end there. And so I did, and, and we got to rebuild our relationship and that trust, and it was just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, and then June 2nd, he, um, he passed away, mm-hmm. and I was with him. Um, 
And it's been hard for me to get over that sight, his eyes, you know, when he took that last breath. Um, And then I did CPR on him for 20 minutes. Um, So it's been hard. Um, (laughs) But I've been doing this Tony Robbins stuff challenge. And, um, you know, there was a lady on there that lost her three-year-old daughter to cancer. And this lady was being so positive and she talked about how she changed the story. She changed the story, the the way, the perspective. She got to spend three beautiful years with that little angel. Yeah. You know? And then now she gets to share the rest of her life helping other people, you know, with this tragedy. I got to spend the best time with my dad. I got to rebuild everything. I got to he wasn't alone when he died. And that's, yeah. a, that's a miracle. You know what I mean? Yes. That's a miracle because I, I shouldn't be here. And so it was just a beautiful thing to be able to get back and do all that. Um, you know, and now I'm working through this. Um, and this was just June 2nd last year? June 2nd last year, yeah. So it hasn't even been a year yet. No. Um, Did you guys ever have a conversation about your recovery? Uh, was there ever a time when he sat down and said, you know, Seneca, I'm proud of you, man. He did. He did. The last two months, he would tell me that he loved me and he was proud of me every day. And for my father, he was a hard man. He never told me he loved me, ever. You know, so that was just, you know, pretty amazing, pretty beautiful as well. <laughs> oh. I mean, it's... I mean, after hearing uh, your laundry list of injuries, I mean, it is amazing that yeah. you're here today to share your Absolutely. story. Yeah. Uh, you brought up your daughter, so I've got to ask, how's the relationship with her? Amazing. Um, you know, my ex-wife wouldn't let me talk to her for a year of recovery. Um, so the last two years, I've, I've regained that relationship. Um, she knows that her dad is is he doesn't drink. She's never seen me high or drunk. Um, and I, I'm never angry. I, you know, I, I show her love. I tell her I love her all the time. I'm trying to break that cycle. Yeah. You know, trying to break that cycle. And, you know, it's been good. I did get away. I, I got away from AA for about four months and tried to do it on my own. And uh, I was getting up every morning. I was praying. I was meditating. Make my bed first thing. Never yep. gone away from this. Make my bed, pray, meditate, exercise. <clears throat> and I was doing this on my own. Um, and I got this deep, deep depression. I was in Havasu all by myself. Um, so, and I did decide to take a drink. This was like 30 days ago. Um, and I, I'll tell you exactly what it did, you know, because I thought I've got the power. I'm good. I'm three, mm-hmm. almost three years sober. You know, I'm strong. I'm doing all this stuff right. <clears throat> And what it did was, is it brought that obsession right back. Mm. So for three days in a row, I wasn't going to drink. And then I ended up go buying a six pack. I didn't get drunk. I drank like a gentleman, but it created the obsession, obsession, the obsession. And so I looked at my phone. I got my daughter on my phone. I said, I ain't going to do this. And so I took action and I have a friend in LA and I went and I worked with all these guys and I did 19 meetings in, uh, 14 days, you know, I did this Tony Robbins challenge. I exercised, I hiked Malibu. I just immersed myself right back into the 12 steps of AA. You know, it seems, and and, and I'm not a therapist, but my good friend is, uh, a lot of this, your life has been a solo journey. And it seems like what you've always been looking for is connection. And it seems when you are in the rooms of the 12 steps, Mm -hmm. 
or if you're surrounded working with that, or even when you were living on Skid Row, you ran around with three guys, mm. is that you're looking for connection. And I think connection seems to be a, a, a big thing that you need in your life. And I think that's what we all need. Well, I think, you know, I, I have this connection with my higher power, right? And I was doing all these things. What I'm missing, the, the, the great thing about relapse is a part of, of recovery. Sure. A lot of people do. It's what you do with that mistake. Do you learn from it? Do you see? I got to identify exactly what I stopped doing. I stopped going to meetings. I stopped calling my sponsor and, um, you know, working with others. It's exactly what I stopped doing. Made it crystal clear. Made it crystal clear what I had to do. Absolutely. So I dove right back in and I, 30 days later, I am so happy. Good for you, man. (laughs) I know that. And you know what? That is. The, the the cognitive psychology that Seneca is sharing today is just off the charts. It's how you think about things. The way he's thinking about that relapse is beautiful because it it brings you know acutely into focus mm-hmm. what you need to do to remain the person you want to be yep. and to be there for other people. That's that's wonderful. Yep. Do you know how brave it is of you to talk about that relapse? Because a lot of people won't. Because they'll it, wait till it's been ten years ago, and, and they'll talk and, about a relapse as but if yeah. thirty days out. Like I'm proud of you, and I know what kind of strength and courage it takes to make that statement. And the reality is, is I get people all the time reaching out through Facebook or whatever it is, talking about their relapses, and they don't want to tell anybody. And I go, "That's listen, relapses happen; they do." The whole goal with a relapse is not to go back to Skid Row, not to go all the way back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's to learn what you need to learn and then keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. But so many people don't. And I was just talking to a guy here in the building before we started this podcast, and we were talking about relapses because he's a buddy of mine that had a friend that relapsed and overdosed and died. Mm-hmm. And I said, for people who don't understand that, imagine you've been on a three-month diet, and your jam was cookies. And one day you decide, I'm going to have one cookie. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you have a cookie, and you're like, that was pretty good. Since I've already broke it today, I might as well have two. All or nothing. And then it's two, it's three, and then it's the sleeve. (laughs) Now, what unfortunately a lot of society does, they wake up the next day, and they go, well, I've already broke it, so I might as well run with it for a bit, and then I'll get back on it. Right. But then they don't get back on it. And then what they do, that's why, I mean, I'm a victim of that too. That's why my weight will fluctuate. It'll go up and down because for some reason we don't jump right back on that horse. Yeah. Well, you know, personality, mentality, the two of you guys have something in common. It's go big or go home, right? Yeah. Both yep. of you have that all in mm-hmm. mentality, which when it's focused on something productive, it's untouchable. Yeah, absolutely. But when it's focused on a box of Oreos, then they're gone pretty quick, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. And so I'm, I'm amazed uh, that you're doing so well. You look healthy. You, 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 feel, you seem like everything's going good. So yeah. what does life look like for Seneca today? Man, life today is, you know, I'm focused on being a father, you know, raising my daughter. I get the opportunity to be the best dad ever, you know, and, and she... She loves me. You know, she tells me she loves me and I get to tell her I love her. You know, she knows she's safe when she's around me. You know, today I get to be a, a good friend. You know, I get to focus on investments. You know, I get to focus on things that I want to do. You know, I, I'm pretty motivated and listen to a lot of podcasts and uh, trying to set myself up for success and let my money make money for me, you know. Um, so today, this, today's good. 
So this uh, this time right now is good. I'm actually going to go up to Soar. You've heard of Soar, that yes. gym. We've had them on a lot. Yes, yes. Yeah. Justin, those guys, those uh, guys. Uh, Chris Hill, Yeah, uh, going to start going to their place and try to create some more community um, because that's what I need. You know, And right? I, I need to dive back into helping the homeless. You know, I did that when I was in L.A. every Friday. Um, so... I've identified what is my problem and I, and I went through and I think I was going through a lot of the stages of grief and I think it was the depression part, you know, that like really kind of got me and I was just lonely and I was isolated and I decided to drink, you know? So I, I, it's rigorous honesty in Alcoholics Anonymous, Mm -hmm. you know, I could have just said, not even said anything and kept going, you know, but I wanted to show that we do relapse and, we got to learn what we did wrong, identify the problem, and move forward. But what people don't understand is the dangerousness of not saying anything. Because I'm just thinking if my situation was the same as your situation. No, I haven't relapsed, and I'm coming up on five years. I haven't, I'm not even had NyQuil, nothing in my system. But had I decided to drink and came on and did this podcast, I would feel like a fraud. Mm-hmm. And then, then I've also the addict part of my brain goes... I got away with that. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody knows. I, nobody knows. So maybe it's not that big a deal. Yeah. Justification. I, justification. Yeah. I and got, they start piling up. Yeah, yeah, I got away with it. You know, I could probably I, do it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe it won't be as bad as the, the last time. But the fact that you put it out there, ownership of it, and put it out there is amazing. I mean, to me, this is the most crucial part of this podcast is that statement right there. Yeah, is I agree. That he was brave enough and strong enough to talk I about agree. it now. Because had you not and gone back home and the podcast released and everybody listens to it and tells you how amazing you are yeah. inside without knowing that whole thing, I believe that would eat at you. Your mom knew about it. <laughs> it's hard to run anything. Back How can you do a podcast and talk about my mom? <laughs> Your mom, yeah. There's a few people that that I've told. You know, it's <clears throat> it's one of those things. You know, you you tell you go to AA meetings and yeah. it's uh, anonymity. You know, but right. there are people that you, that support you, love you, and and help you that yeah. need to know. Yeah, you know? Well, there's power in in the idea of radical honesty. Yeah, absolutely. Just, I'm going to be 100 honest. Radical honesty leads to ownership. You own your, your, your success, you own your mistakes, and you are less attached to that mistake in a, in a uh, shameful way. Oh, and, I, like the weight lifted yeah. off my shoulders. Yeah. You know what I mean? And now, now it can work for you. Yeah, that absolutely. mistake can inform you of what not to do yep. and, and the, what to do in the future. And the thing he said, it was freeing to him. Yeah. For everybody else, it's uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, I mean... Yeah, it can be. Yeah, you know what I mean? But that's the one thing about it. It's like, no, this is my journey. And it's right. like, you know, we talked about my mom. I remember right out of rehab, I called my mom. She goes, thank God we're not going to have to do this again. And I go, huh? And she goes, what do you mean? <laughs> uh, and I yeah. go, you want me to tell you that I'm never going to drink again so it makes you right feel easier. Yeah. Her that, security. Your yeah. security. Yeah. And, and, and I can't do that because then that makes me uneasy and because the reality is I don't know. And I can sit here and I've got my job back in my life and everything is, but I don't know. I could be gone pretty quick. I could tell you right now I don't want to. I've got the tools in place and I haven't and I don't see myself doing it, but I cannot promise you. Right. All I can do is give you the best I've got. Just for today. Yep, and everything seems to be going good and I love my life and I'm grateful for it and I'm blessed and I'm thankful and I want to be the guy you can bet on. Yeah. Well, it's, you're an inspiration to a lot of people, too. Oh, well, and you are as well, and, and I'm proud that you stopped by and shared your story. So uh, 
Thank you very much. And you're I mean, you're an amazing man and a true friend, and, and, and I thank you for your friendship. You're welcome. Dr. Matt, what are your thoughts on Seneca? Oh, man, he's, he's all those things that you just said and more. Um, I'm, I'm grateful for you being so honest on the show because I, I, I wonder if, if that's hard for a lot of our guests to be that honest. And, and if you're a former guest listening, I appreciate everything you've come on and shared. But I appreciate uh, Seneca being so honest today and actually demonstrating the power of positive thinking and and reframing. I, I think the way you, part of your recovery and grief with your father is is to reframe that, to think like that was time that was precious that you got to spend with him and you got to be with him there at the end. And you were there for him. And now you're there for your daughter. And I think that's just a beautiful message to share with everybody. Well, thank you. Any thoughts, Sitika? Oh, I'm just blessed to be here, man. This has been super cool. Wow. I haven't been on a microphone for a while, so we love you. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. And thank you for stopping by and listening to another episode of Project Recovery. In case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? It's a KSL podcast. Give us a little chant real quick. You ain't having a dollar here now. Somebody give a $25,000. You ain't dollars $25,000. $25,000. $27,50. $27,500. $3,000 here. $3,000 here. And I sold $27,50. Yeah. <laughs> of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.